Magazines and Monsters, Episode 4, Amicus Films, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. Man, you come right out of a comic book. Hey everybody, Billy D, aka Doc Strange here, and it's been quite a long time since I've had any recordings here at Magazines and Monsters, especially a long format episode. There's a myriad of reasons for that, but I am not going to bore you with those. I uh, just wanted to let you know that I'm back and ready to talk about another classic horror film. And I absolutely had to have my Into the Weird cohort in crime, Herman Lowe, to join me. How are you today, buddy? Hey, Billy. No, I can't complain, as ever. <laughs> Actually, there's a lot to complain about, but I'm not going to bore our listeners with that. I'm just here to talk some horror because uh, this is my happy place. Horror. <laughs> so thanks for having me again. Oh, yeah. Any, anybody that has a horror podcast, as you do with the Long Box of Darkness, it's uh, never really an arm twist needed to get you to talk horror. <laughs> Especially not what you've selected to talk about today, man. I mean, I'm really grateful for you thinking of, of me because this is one of my favorite horror films, old horror films, and also one of my favorite studios producing it. So, yeah, this is definitely right in our wheelhouse and it's going to make me very a very happy herman uh, when i can sit down and listen to this show once it's out so thanks man yeah uh, 1965 was a good year for horror and you know you and i are both uh, big uh, hammer fans hammer lovers uh, as uh, we would say but there was also another studio that rivaled hammer in the 1960s uh, amicus studios uh, another british filmmaking studio that put out some fantastic films a little bit different than hammer though with uh you know contemporary settings rather than you know turn of the century period pieces though right yeah well i mean one of the reasons for that was obviously they were on a budget um and the budget was much smaller than the hammer studios had at the time because hammer had already made it big back then so because of their low budget they decided to not opt for period pieces because think about it billy with period pieces you need to invest a lot of cash into getting the costumes right, into building the sets, um, into filming in remote locations far away from the studio to get, you know, the, the nature scenes just right. And um, obviously the cameras for that is different too. You've got to spend quite a bit of um, your fortune or your, you know, investors' fortunes on getting that right. So they, they opted for these in-studio productions, which was contemporary horror, so that they didn't need all of that, those extra props and um and sets and it worked because they're they turned a profit because of that a huge profit and they were competing with hammer at the time um and they were doing really well financially in, in terms of um you know how well received it was so yeah i think um, that's one of the reasons they focused on the contemporary setting uh, but also you know because that could actually also compete with hammer and not just uh, regurgitate the hammer formula yeah, I mean, you had uh, two guys, Max Rosenberg and Milton Sabotsky, that started Amicus, and you know they had a little bit different vision, like we said, and direction uh, than Hammer, but they wanted to go toe-to-toe with Hammer as far as making these uh, horror films, and they had no problem poaching writers, directors, and actors and actresses <laughs> <laughs> to uh, get the job done, because of course none of those people were on exclusive contracts. I don't know I, if that's something the UK just didn't do, I would assume, because I don't know, I've never heard of anybody, especially in that area, having an exclusive contract, because over here in America you did have you know, people under contract oh, even right. as far back as the 30s and 40s, where they were 
universal actors or actresses or you know mgm or whomever i don't think they had that over there at least not in the 19 you know 50s and 60s that i know of in the uk no you're right they didn't everybody was freelance <laughs> if you can call it that so even freddie francis the director he was not tied down by hammer he could definitely jump ship and they lured him over to do that not with any great financial rewards right billy with uh, financial mm-hmm. incentives but just because he loved the source material and he wanted to direct something different than a period piece and uh that is the case with this movie today you know and so in in fact we've got three big names jumping ship from hammer briefly over to amicus uh chris christopher lee and then of course the great peter cushing and then freddie francis <laughs> all from hammer so yeah, you're right. You're exactly right. They didn't have any contracts, and there was no uh, limits on where who they could work for. Yeah, and I mean, Amicus they put out you know a few movies. They're probably most known for anthology films, though. Um, yeah, and this Port- was their first one. Yeah, Portmanteaus. This is their first in their uh, anthologies. Uh, is it their best? Uh, um, I think. You could know. say so. It's debatable. It's debatable. It's definitely my personal favorite. But if you think about torture garden or maybe even the house that drip blood i think those stories are less silly you know they focus a little bit more on horror even though amicus was not renowned for its blood you know they never showed a lot of lurid imagery or or sexually explicit uh, murder scenes like hammer did um but they were more like about the o henry ending the the twist ending and about um you know generating horror through um these set pieces where you know something like a wind for instance just the wind could could evoke a sense of horror because it chases a man down an alley or something like that so they their horror was more subtle i think whereas hammer was more overt and focused more on these bloody uh images on screen to to horrify you so yeah i think uh you know there are better ones than dr terror's house of horrors which is the one we're going to be talking about um, but you know, it's my favorite because uh, it's got Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing together, <laughs> you know, and when they interact <laughs> and, and, you know, in, in, um, Dracula, Prince of Darkness, they, they didn't interact much in, in terms of, you know, dialogue. <laughs> so yeah, even though they were great together, um, in the, the few scenes they shared, I just love here because they actually have some verbal sparring going on between them. Um, which is actually not that rare because they've been in so many films together. But in this film, it's just it's it's even more brilliant than in, in most of their other appearances. Just just my personal opinion. Oh yeah, their scenes in this one are very good. Uh, like you were saying about the the movies and which ones are the best or favorites. This one, Torture Garden, is one I love as well. And then I would have to say Asylum. I would have to put in that uh, category as well. Okay, yeah, because, yeah, that's actually, I think, uh, in their portmanteau films, that's the fourth one. And that's when they finally got the formula right. That's when they they didn't focus on these silly scripts as much. They went really, Asylum was quite uh, horrifying, if you think about it. There was none of these silly little uh, stories that made you kind of smile (laughs) throughout. You know, like, for instance, in... um, Dr. Terry's House of Horrors later we'll be talking about the voodoo story and the 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 creeping vine story. Those stories are just silly, <laughs> you know, but yeah. but you know, in Asylum I think every single uh tale in that sort of hit the mark when it comes to when it comes to horror. I mean, yeah. Uh, at least that's what I think. Frozen Fear, yeah. man, that one story in Asylum, Frozen Fear, damn. <laughs> that is some real fear you feel when you watch that that segment. And then I think there's another one too, the the weird tailor or 
I, I can't remember, but yeah, there's, there's a couple of ones. So you're right, Asylum could be up there for one of my favorites. Yeah, for sure. And I'm a big Herbert Lom guy, so mm. I love his segment in that one too. It's that one's kind of a little, <laughs> I don't want to say funny, but it is kind of crazy. That's probably the craziest one out of all of them, but I love it. <laughs> oh man. So, but, uh, can I ask you then, Billy, just for my own interest, like, what was your first Amicus film? Like, how did you, you know, realize? How did you come to realize? Okay, this is not Hammer. This is Amicus. Well, I think the first time I saw one of the films. Uh, by Amicus, I was pretty young, and of course, you know, pre-internet days, you see, you know, a Peter Cushing or a Christopher Lee, or you know, somebody like that, and you think, oh, well, this has got to be, you know, Hammer, because mm. I didn't know about Hammer, but I'm pretty sure the first one I saw was Torture Garden, right? Um, and then as I got a little bit older, you know, I saw, oh, well, you know, there were some uh, some work in this film by Robert Block. Of course, you know, we know him as a, you know, one of the best horror writers, you yeah, know, from the psycho fame and uh, yeah. aficionado of Lovecraft. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So that really got me hooked once I saw his name then, too. And of course, I just, you know, once I got uh, the means to find out, well, how many movies did they put out and, you know, what years and this, that, I just went absolutely crazy. And, you know, Hammer still holds that number one spot for me. But like you said, you know, when we first started talking here, the Amicus is right there too. I do enjoy the period pieces a little bit more than the the you know contemporary for the time when they were released uh, movies. But you can't go wrong with these films. And then you know, not only the anthology films, but <laughs> the you know long format films too. Like I mean, the Skull. You know, oh, you and I live we, tweeted we, it just the other we day. We live right? tweeted that one not long ago. Yeah, and it, that film is great. Again, Cushing and Lee. You know, Michael Goff, mm. he's in this one too, but it's just, oh, such a good movie. And of course, there'll always be a place in my heart for uh, The Beast Must Die. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, that is a even classic. Yeah, even though, you know, it's obviously a, a fairly cheesy monster, but. Uh, <laughs> that skylight it scene. A, <laughs> oh, yeah, it still holds a place in my heart because that's another one I saw when I was very young, probably too young to even see a movie like that, which obviously by 2020 standards isn't scary or gory or anything like that. But back then it was you know probably very early 1980s so <laughs> yeah no, no no that's right i mean if you think about it you could rank some films that are not actually amicus as amicus films too because sabotsky and rosenberg produced them um like we we've talked about this film many times and we want to some one, one day probably talk about it on your podcast billy the city of the dead oh you yeah, know, yeah that is actually a type of it is kind of amicus because it is sabotsky and rosenberg sort of uh mm -hmm. trying their hand at um, horror films and I would rank that as an amicus film, though. I mean, many people don't. But um, yeah, and then you, you, in the 70s, they still had a couple of good films, too, that I never realized were amicus until, you know, uh, recently. Stuff like Scream and Scream Again, you know, yeah. or um, Madhouse. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Price and a couple of those. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they, they turned out more than you think. It wasn't, you know, hundreds of movies or anything like that, but they have a decent little library that... Mm. Uh, they're definitely worth looking into if you uh, haven't seen any of their films. I mean, odds are, if you're a horror uh, person, you have, and you might not know it, but yeah, good stuff. Amicus is, like I said, right there. They're a, a close second place to uh, Hammer for me. Definitely, definitely. And it bears mentioning, since you and I are both you know, big fans of horror comics, um, they did Tales from the Crypt and the Vault of Horror as portmanteau mm -hmm. films in the early 70s, too. And, and that's how yeah. I, you know... Uh, how they uh, came, you know, under my radar. 
um, because mm -hmm. uh, I, you know, was a fan of the Tales of the Crypt uh, TV series produced, obviously, by in the States in the 80s. Yeah. And then, you know, of course, I, I picked up some of the reprinted comics. And then eventually I, I found my way to the Amicus Tales from the Crypt from 1972, their portmanteau movie. And um, loved it, you know, loved it. And it's even in many ways superior to the, the TV series <laughs> because the TV series had some constraints on, on what they could present. Here, not as much, even though it wasn't very bloody. So yeah, um, loved mm -hmm. Amicus. Second place to Hammer though, but yeah, I'm so excited to talk about this, my favorite Amicus film, in fact, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. Yeah, for sure. And like you said, they poached... Uh... Freddie Francis, so they got him for uh, the direction of this movie and produced by, like you said, Rosenberg and Savatsky. But yeah, great cast. I mean, through this whole segments here, you got Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee. They're uh, not only you know in uh, Chris. Well, Peter Cushing's uh, in the you know the framing sequences, and then you have Christopher Lee, Michael Goff, Donald Sutherland, a very young Donald a Sutherland, young Donald, and, but handsome man. I I never associated yeah. Donald Sutherland with with a handsome young actor but in this one damn he's like a, a heartbreaker yeah. I'm sure the lady swooned <laughs> yeah when I saw him in this the first time I was like hey wait a minute that looks like the guy from I'm like oh yeah that's him you know I was like it's tough to realize because I think the first movie of his I ever saw was uh Invasion of the Body Snatchers yeah same if I'm not mistaken. Mm, same here yeah and it, which there, is a crazy wild film <laughs> yeah it's and there he looks very different emaciated uh, he looks more world weary, but here he's like a fresh faced youth <laughs> right off the theater circuit. Yeah, because he's originally from Canada, right? So he was, um, you know, he went to, to London or to England to, to get some theater experience. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. when they picked him up for this movie. This is one of his first roles, I think. His, his very first starring role, it could be. Um, I'm pretty sure about that, yeah. So. Yeah, you. Like I said, he was a pretty young man at that, at 1965, you know, that's pretty, that's <laughs> pretty, right. pretty far back there even for him. But yeah, I mean, you had some other uh, people in this uh, film too, that uh, anybody that's Hammer and Amicus, you know, your, your trained eye, you'll notice, or even just horror in general. Um, one of the actresses, uh, Jennifer Jane, uh, <sighs> there's a, a certain horror movie about a, a train ride to a town. Is it in the Alps, maybe? And there's ah. uh, something going on uh, with these giant eyeball creatures. That's right. I don't <laughs> want to think about it, Billy. Just uh, please just give me a break today. I know you're on holiday and you're out for, for blood, but come on. No mm -hmm. eyeball horror. <laughs> yeah, that's one of my favorite, like, lesser-known offbeat horror films, The Trollenberg Terror. <laughs> yeah, The Trollenberg Terror is a classic, I must admit, but I do... Uh, it rankles me, <laughs> you know. It just I can't stand those eyeballs. But she's very striking. She's a very striking lady, uh, Jennifer Jane, especially in this role that she plays here as a sexy vampire. Mm -hmm. uh, I I really like her. She's got that '60s kind of look, you know. So um, definitely mm -hmm. also from Hammer, you know. Um, she, they've they've poached her, and then you know uh, you've got a couple of offbeat guys too, but they're they were well known at the time. Uh, you've got Roy Castle, who who later became. I mean, he's a musician. He he plays the yeah. trumpet for real, which he also does in his segment. But yeah, um, I mean, he became a famous um, TV personality after this, and a children's uh, TV host, I think. Yep. And then you've got uh, you know a couple of other guys, like for instance, um, Alan Freeman. You know, I think he plays a guy, Bill Rogers, and then wasn't Alan Freeman like, if I'm not mistaken. 
uh, or this might not be Alan Freeman. Sorry, sorry. One of the guys was a DJ on top of the pops. <laughs> and, oh, uh, gosh. Let me just find that. I made a note of it here somewhere. My notes are so disorganized. Um, okay, it's it's from the creeping. Yeah, it's, it's it is Alan Freeman. You know, he's playing oh, this yeah, character yeah. from the creeping he vine. Played Bill Rogers, yeah. Now he was a DJ, you know, from the top of the pops radio show in Britain at the time, and and but he's not a good actor, Billy. I'm sure you would say he's very wooden and <laughs> uninteresting on screen, but so yeah. famous at that time. For some reason, he was looking to break into movies. You know, yeah. So yeah, you have them, but but they definitely also you know got him on to for the you know uh, his uh, fame. To, to boost, you know, obviously the audience, the viewership for this movie. And it might have worked, of course. I mean, hey, Alan Freeman's in this movie. Let's go see it. All these little fans of his. <laughs> yeah, and then in one of the segments, too, uh, the first one, the werewolf segment, there was a uh, a couple of servants at the house. And I thought to myself, boy, that girl looks familiar. Who is that girl? And I wow. thought, oh, she ends up, uh, the character Valda, she's in... Uh, Evil of Frankenstein for Hammer. She's That's like right. a, a beggar girl that doesn't like a, a deaf mute. Yeah, her name's Katie Wilde. Yeah, yeah, she, Katie she's Wilde. Oh, okay. That's right, and she's wild. She's a wild one. <laughs> I mean, she doesn't play a wild oh, one yeah. in this one, but she might as well be. But yeah, you're right. Lots of uh, old Hammer stalwarts. No Michael Ripper though, sadly, our favorite, right? But no, yeah, too bad. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, great cast that they assembled here. It's, except for the top of the pops guy Alan Freeman but um, you know I liked all of them I think and they even had a, a, a little bit of a could you call it a cameo appearance by by um, M from the James Bond franchise <laughs> oh yeah right <laughs> yeah oh man that's that's awesome I mean obviously um, he's you know uh, been in lots of stuff other than James Bond before you know he made it big um, I, I think what what is his real name again um, is it Bernard Lee I think it's his yes. real name Bernard Lee yep. yeah him mm -hmm. so you know every time he pops up i'm like oh man m's in it even in the skull you know when we were live tuning it the other day or <laughs> yeah so lots of well-known faces if you're a horror fan and if you're a fan of this this era of horror hammer horror and amicus then you'll recognize these folks yeah for sure they're a lot like of familiar... old, yeah they're like old friends by now mm -hmm. right billy <laughs> yeah oh absolutely yeah if you watch like i said if you watch all these 50s 60s even 70s horror especially British horror, you will see a lot of uh, familiar faces because they jumped from, you know, production company to production company because, you know, hey, you got to make a living. So it's not like they were getting paid a ton of money to do these movies either because, like you said, the budgets were were pretty low. <laughs> yeah, I hunted up uh, a quick fact. Like, um, they say, for instance, Donald Sutherland, he only got paid 5400 well, only. Back then it was probably a lot for him as a young actor, 5400 U.S., Mm -hmm. for his role in this so actually back then it was big a big deal for him but if you think about c comparing that to Cushing and Lee's salaries which was in the um, you know more like 50 or 60 thousand pounds for this you know it's like uh, it doesn't compare or it might have been less than that because now I see in my notes here the budget for this entire film was a hundred and five thousand pounds so mm -hmm. you'd think that the actors would have probably gotten you know not not that much you know, no, so. no, no. But I mean, and that's why they're doing three or four movies a year because then you could actually make a decent living. Yeah, 
I mean, Lee and Cushing's salaries, I was basing off the Hammer salaries they were getting, you know, that they were yeah. pulling in, they were pulling in stuff big time because some Hammer films had, you know, um, budgets of a million pounds, you know, so then they would rake in, Cushing and Lee would rake in 25,000 or up to 50,000 pounds each for a film. So yeah. make three of those a year, right, Billy? <laughs> You're kind yeah. of, plus you've got all these extra bits of income from, you know, promotional events and, and uh, you know, you you you're clearing a pretty good, uh, you're making a good living, <laughs> like they did back then. Yeah, no doubt about it. And I mean, people too. Another thing you'll recognize when you look up this movie, you know, the facts behind it is where it was filmed, Shepherd and Studios. I mean, you mm. and I know that that place. It was like, you know, Alien was made there in yeah. 1979. So exactly, it's a huge, huge studio that's been home to many very famous and some not so famous horror and sci-fi films and stuff like that but yeah just think about that for a minute yeah exactly you know another bit of uh, an aside before we get into the to the to the meat of this that i hunted up is since this was the first portmanteau movie by amicus um apparently uh, sabotsky and rosenberg got the idea for for doing portmanteau films from a 1945 classic film called dead of night Mm-hmm. Now you might recognize that name, Dead of Night, as one of the Marvel, you know, horror titles from the Bronze Age, since you know you and I are into that. But you know, I right. was surprised that yeah, this actually the name of that uh, comic book was also taken from this film, Dead of Night. I've never seen the film. Mm-hmm. Have you? In 1945, this Ealing film, Dead of Night. Yeah, that's actually pretty good. Uh, I'm not as big of a fan of it as Savosky apparently was. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's one, the one, if I'm thinking correctly, where there's a segment with a ventriloquist dummy and you, you oh. can't go wrong with a creepy ventriloquist dummy oh, segment brilliant you know in horror <laughs> <laughs> definitely not yeah no, no no i agree i mean goosebumps yeah. milk that <laughs> you saw the yeah, goosebumps yeah. series by rl stein so yeah yeah yep. that's definitely a horror trope they should actually bring that back <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah yeah you're right no 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 i want to see that film just just to have that under my belt you know saying that i've seen it but it's interesting that they were you know, using that to base it on. And also they wanted something different than Hammer, which we discussed earlier. They wanted, they didn't want to just copy what Hammer was doing, copy their success. They wanted to provide an alternative for horror fans. And it worked, you know, with the Spormanto yeah. system and contemporary settings. Yeah, so so uh, well done for Sabotsky and Rosenberg on getting this cash cow rolling. Yeah, and I mean, this, uh, to start to get into it a little bit here uh, before we uh, uh, listen to the trailer, the, you know, there's a like framing sequence at the beginning and end and in between each segment. And there are five segments, um, one called Werewolf, uh, one called Creeping Vine, one called Voodoo, Disembodied Hand. That's uh, our buddy uh, Christopher Lee's uh, <laughs> big segment. Oh, and yeah. then one called Vampire. So, uh, yeah, five segments. And uh, I say, that, like you said earlier, there are varying deg- degrees of quality with them just because of some of the actors that are in each segment. Um, right off the bat, though, I'll tell you, my favorite segment is Voodoo, just because it's so ridiculous, and because <laughs> nice. uh, uh, the the lead character reminds me of myself, because he's like a complete goon. The, the, <laughs> the character <laughs> is in that one kind of... If somebody was gonna pull oh. me in a film, it would it might be that guy. <laughs> Bernard Bailey, <laughs> Bernard Billy, Bernard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he plays an excellent character. No, no, that's a good, that's a good segment. Not my favorite, but yeah, definitely up there. Yeah, it's because of the silliness, mm. mar- married with horror. Uh, yeah. Sometimes it works. I mean, you just have to look at the success of the horror comedy 
um, you know, in the 1990s. And, and you'll see this was actually, this was sowing the seeds for that way back when in 1965. The horror comedy shows up in the, this this film. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. And like I said, the, the framing sequences, they're, to me, they're just as good, if not better, than the actual, you know, segments, just for the simple fact that we have Peter Cushing at his best and then going back and forth with the other players here. And then nothing's better than him going back and forth with Christopher Lee. They joust on a few occasions uh, in this film, and those are some real, real high moments. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, that's something I forgot to mention earlier, too, and you just uh, jump-started that you know, memory, Billy. The framing sequences obviously were a big deal because if you're telling an anthology or, or if you're <clears throat> portraying these events, these different tales, you kind of need that framing sequence. And, in you know, uh, they did that really well. Um, uh, in this one, obviously, it's the train. And in uh, Torture Garden, it's like a circus tent, <laughs> you know? So uh-huh. yep. um, they were often very imaginative. And what they did is they threw these actors, these great actors together, and then they would like, you know, play off of each other and, you know, ad lib during the performances apparently. And it would always turn out gold because you have these mm-hmm. geniuses in the room together, right? So I just yeah. loved seeing, you know, Christopher Lee and Cushing sitting next to each other playing sort of antagonists. And then you have Donald Sutherland in the train as well. Oh man, it was just brilliant. So yeah, the framing sequence, like you say, is such a pivotal part of these films. Yeah, absolutely. So, all right, at this point, let's uh, get the trailer rolling, and then we'll come back from the trailer and get right into the segments. Don't go away. Terror. Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. the screen has never before dared to depict. The terrifying horror of the man-killing vine with a human brain that creeps and kills. The terrifying horror of voodoo witchcraft. The terrifying horror of the dead, entombed for 200 years that creeps its way back to terrorize the living. horror of the young doctor forced to plunge a wooden stake into the breast of his beautiful bride the terrifying horror of a dreaded man called dr terror who with his deck of mystic cards could foretell destiny dr terror who has a strange horrifying knowledge of the past and future of every man and woman on earth The fear of the year clutches at your heart with hands as cold as death. Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. Okay, we're back. Uh, All right, so why don't we just get into this here? Like we said earlier, uh, there's uh, five segments. uh, Werewolf, Creeping Vine, Voodoo, Disembodied Hand, and Vampire. Um, So I'm going to do a little synopsis for... Uh, werewolf, uh, voodoo, and disembodied hand, and you're going to handle creeping vine and vampire, right? That's right, yeah. Okay, and then just to kind of give everybody an idea, 
the films basically, you know, it's there, there's an intro scene where you see uh, five guys getting on a train, you know, and uh, heading towards either family or friends or vacation or something in that matter. And, and a sixth person comes onto the train. And who is that sixth person? Dr. Shrek, the, a professor of metaphysics. <laughs> Played by, of course, your avatar, Billy, on Twitter. The... Oh, my boy, Peter Cushing. Woo. That's right. Wow. Wow. And what a performance he delivers. I mean, he does a German accent and he does it brilliantly. Obviously, a, a great actor like him with his past, you know, of, of, of acting in all venues and roles. This German accent is nothing, you know, to him. He can easily do that. But yeah, I love the, the role he plays in this. Yeah, for sure. I mean, other than his fake eyebrows, everything is ace about this performance. <laughs> hey, I, I like those fake eyebrows. <laughs> Reminded me of my grandpa. Come on, man. <laughs> Not that my grandpa had fake eyebrows, but he, his eyebrows were wild, man. Wild and untamed. <laughs> he needed to go get waxed, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he didn't even know what wax was. <laughs> so, yeah, the scene, the, the, the train scene opens with, you know, these five guys and then... Uh, Peter Cushing, uh, a.k.a. Dr. Shrek, comes aboard and he uh, takes a little nap while uh, the train's rolling and he drops his bag and, and a bunch of like uh, miscellaneous stuff falls out and a uh, pack of tarot cards falls out. And of course, uh, a couple of the people don't have any clue about what they mean. Uh, one of the uh, other uh, passengers does uh, <laughs> have an idea of what they're all about. Uh, our buddy uh, Christopher Lee, right? <laughs> yeah, Mr. Franklin Marsh, art critic, scumbag. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he is a huge pecker in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, that's an understatement. Oh, this guy's yeah. grade A dick. <laughs> yeah, he he plays this part exceptionally well, which is funny because when you know anybody knew him in real life, he is the nicest guy. But it just shows his range as an actor. He was he was good at being a nice guy and not nice guy in between. He was he could do high, low, anything. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. So, you know, the uh, Doctor Shrek uh, tells the gentleman that the tarot cards can predict their future. And, of course, at first they're all a little skeptical, and he says, well, uh, I, I'll do a little demonstration here. So first up is uh, architect Jim Dawson, uh, and Dr. Shrek begins to uh, tell him about uh, how he returns to his ancestral home because the woman that actually purchased it, she wants some work done. So she wants to do a little remodeling. She wants to knock out a wall. And he says, okay, but, you know, I'm going to have to check out the house. Uh, her name is Mrs. Biddulph. And uh, she's quite an attractive uh, lady as well. Very and attractive. he's she's more got... than happy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She, I wanted to say she's got a bit of a Dusty Springfield look. Oh, yeah. yeah. She's a very nice looking lady. <laughs> yes. Very attractive. <laughs> yeah. So uh, he's more than uh happy to spend the weekend there checking out the house and seeing what she wants done so he eventually makes his way down to the uh, basement to check out the foundation of the house while he's down there he comes upon a wall that wasn't there when he lived there I guess uh, many years ago and after uh, doing a little poking and prodding he sees behind this uh, newer constructed wall that there's a coffin 
he asks, you know, one of the uh, house servants, Caleb, if he knows what it's all about. And he tells him uh, about the curse of Count Valdemar. <laughs> mm-hmm. What a name. <laughs> Count I know, I'm thinking Nashi is right, what I think of, because isn't he uh, close yeah. to that name? Yes, that is the name he uses as the werewolf, Valdemar, with a W, right? Um, mm-hmm. Valdemar the werewolf, yeah. Yeah, so after he tells him about the curse, of course, uh, you know, Jim doesn't really think much of it. But Caleb seems to be very, uh, very entranced by this, uh, this curse as if it is very real. But eventually he thinks to himself, you know, hey, maybe there's something to this when he hears a wolf howling. Then a few strange things happen that start to kind of plant a seed in his head that something might be happening here for real. And then one night, Caleb's daughter, Valda, she actually gets brutally murdered. So then he knows something's really, really going on here that's not right. And uh, he procures a gun from Caleb, and they talk about the curse and how the only way to stop the werewolf is with silver bullets. So he fashions a silver cross and melts it down and makes him some silver bullets. How he accomplishes that out in the middle of the country, I'm not quite sure, though. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he's probably architect slash engineer here. (laughs) Yeah, but yeah, where does he get the tools? The smelter, where does he get the smelting pot? The the, the molds, yeah, this is crazy, but but he does it. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh, right. So he does have a confrontation and a showdown with a werewolf. But it doesn't quite end the way you think it would for him as he empties the bullets into the werewolf and it has no effect. And then he finds out the real secret that Mrs. Biddulph is actually the wife of the Count Voldemort or Valdemar. And it was all a big setup to get him back to the ancestral home to murder him. So then the count could arise from his uh, curse of being a werewolf. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So what did you think about this one? Oh, yeah, I, I really liked it. I'm a big werewolf guy. You know, any kind of werewolf yarn <clears throat> really gets me going. And, um, you know, I, I like, I, like you said, I, I loved uh, Mrs. Biddulph, you know, because she acts it so well. She turns out to be the villain, you know, at the end. So it's definitely a, a bit of a twist. I did kind of see that coming. You know, but maybe not the first time I watched it. But you know, so you know, actually, you know, I'm I'm being disingenuous here because, but you know, after a long time of not watching it, I completely forgot the story. And then when I rewatched it, I believe I, I, I did see it coming then. But as a kid, watched when I watched watched this uh, when I was very young, I can't remember the ending of the story very very well. But um, I liked it overall. They didn't have a lot of werewolf effects though, you know, because obviously yeah. budget constraints and all of that. But it did have that creepy atmosphere where you don't know what's happening on the grounds of this guy's ancestral home. And at one point in time, the 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 girl <clears throat> is attacked, Katie Wilde. Mm-hmm. Um, I've forgotten the, the name that she uses in the story, but uh, Valda, sorry, Valda. Valda, Valda. Valda is attacked. And uh, Caleb, her dad, you know, he's around and, um, you know, uh, you, you kind of suspect him of being the werewolf. They kind of set him up to be like that because he's got this sinister appearance and he knows something's <laughs> going on. And there's a crypt yep. in in the ancestral home that, that you know, um, McCallum, uh, Jamie, Jamie Dawson, the character Jamie Dawson, the architect never Jim knew Dawson, about. Yeah. Oh, man, it's, it's great. And and it's set in the Scottish Highlands, which which is which accounts for all the mist and the, the, the creepiness. 
<laughs> floating around there. Oh man, yeah. I I really liked it. It's not my favorite tale of the bunch, but um, it's very enjoyable as the first tale that springs off, uh, you know, this this Pormanto, you know, setting. I really liked it. Yeah, I mean, anybody that knows the other Amicus films we talked about, if you have a complaint about the air quotes werewolf in the Beast Must Die, this one will really. Uh... <laughs> 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 this one will be really disappointing. So don't don't get your hopes up. There wasn't uh, a a really awesome werewolf here, but it like you said, that you know the build up to it, and the intrigue and the mystery and the little bit of a twist on the ending there. How you know it turned out, that really did put this one in a in a good spot here. Yeah. It's it's like you said, it might not be somebody's favorite, but it's still a very good segment, you know, because of those things. That's right. Just something I spotted here in my in my notes, Billy. The the names they use use here is suitably creepy. Miss Biddulph is given a name that is not creepy because they're trying to sort of steer away the you know horror from her, you know, so as not to to give anything away too early. But um, the two servants, Caleb and Valda, you know, they've got got these horror sounding names, but not too bad. But then when you get to the count. Cosmo, Cosmo Valdemar. <laughs> I mean, even even Paul Nashi's name of Valdemar, I think, is called Valdemar Daninsky, right? He's a count too, yes. I think. Um, yep. That's the Daninsky part. Sort of takes away the ominous-sounding Valdemar segment, but here, Cosmo, Cosmo Valdemar. Just, um, I don't know what to make of it, but it's a it's it's a great name. So yeah, I love the names in this segment more than more so than the rest because in the rest, you know, people just sport normal names you know, um, in, yeah. in the other segments, because there's, they're in more contemporary settings that are not in far removed Scottish, you know, uh, mansions in the Highlands. So yeah, that's, yeah, that's I, the last bit of my notes. <laughs> yeah. And I will say, uh, you know, Neil McCallum, who plays Jim Dawson, he does okay with the Scottish accent. I got to admit he did. Okay. That's it, it passed to me as believable. And I don't know really any Scottish people that have that <laughs> heavy Scottish accent, but I thought he sounded believable. No, no, no. It, yeah. He well, I mean, I'm I'm not even sure about McCallum. Is he actually Scottish? I'm I'm not sure. So so it might be the reverse. It might be he is Scottish and he toned it down for this movie. You know. Uh, I'm seeing here he's British Canadian. Oh, okay. Sorry. So yeah, you were right then the first time because yeah, So he did good. Yeah. yeah. man, he did a really good accent then because it was understandable, but I for me it sounded like a Scottish guy who kind of had to pare it down, but yeah, that shows you how well he did it. So, you know, great performances all around and um, yeah, very enjoyable for me, Billy, at least this, this segment. Not a great name, Werewolf. It's very on the nose, but, um, you know, <laughs> all of these films focused more on the names of the film than on their segment names, you know, so it's it's uh, forgivable and understandable. Yeah, I think they were luring people in with the name and the movie poster. And of course, when, you know, people back then saw a movie poster coming soon and they saw Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing they were probably going to see that movie uh, anyway so yes. it, it was definitely going to hook them and it hooked in the people that were you know those horror aficionados because by then those guys had done quite a few films and were big names in the horror community that's right and the Amicus posters were suitably um, excellent and creepy um, um, you know, I'll try to find some online, but I remember I've got a Pinterest file full of just Amicus movie posters <laughs> and mm. artist renditions of it. So I'll I'll send those along, Billy. Maybe we can somehow oh, cool. include it in a post. But yeah, they've got they had really great, often sometimes better than Hammer. 
yeah know, so, but yeah. not well, not always but yeah they had good posters for the movies yeah absolutely so okay so on to uh the next section uh, the next uh part here creeping vine uh so what do you have on that one here okay. what are we gonna say yeah no no i've i've got a bit of a, a synopsis here for us okay like we said, this features Alan Freeman, the legendary top top of Bob's DJ, <laughs> as a man called Bill Rogers, and uh, Bill returns from a holiday with his wife Anne, who's played by a lady called Anne Bell, and his daughter Carol, um, only to find that a strange leafy vine has taken root in his garden, and the vine has actually wrapped itself around part of the house sort of like some kind of uh, evil uh, ivy. <laughs> um, and then this vine seems to be able to move of its own accord, and it refuses to yield to, for instance, garden shears, or any attempts to remove it on the part of Bill, of Bill Rogers. And so, um, and eventually, the vine also takes a dislike to the family dog, and in fact... <laughs> murders this little dog which was a horrific sequence especially since Bill's daughter witnessed it now think about it a little girl her favorite thing in the world is her little dog and then she hears this dog yelping screaming almost in a human voice and then finds it dead strangled or you know by this vine so yeah <clears throat> and then Bill seems to to know some pretty you know smart types <laughs> because he turns to these two scientists professors Drake and Hopkins and um, as we said one of them is played by Bernard Lee M from the James Bond franchise and Drake and Hopkins yep. they study this plant and try to attempt or, or, or come up with a means of eradicating it and um, to do so they sequester themselves in Bill's house and one of them stays over uh, Mr. Uh, Professor Drake and he sort of studies this vine and um you know, then uh, the vine, you know, knows that its life is being threatened. It's got this sort of sense to it that, you know, um, there's danger. So it sort of um, imprisons the, the folks in the house. And then they eventually learn that uh, fire is its weakness. And um, they use that as a means of escape. Now, I'm not going to spoil it too much uh, for the listeners. While we talk about it, Billy, you and I can, can, can talk about the ending. But, you know, this is one of the silly stories in the... Um, in this movie it's very very silly I mean there's even a line where Bill says if, if I can remember correctly like oh my god this this plant can take over the world <laughs> <laughs> no it's only in your yard Bill <laughs> it's... yeah so this, this yeah this, this was wild it's a crazy story crazy story but there's some murder happening you know you've got um, Professor yeah. Drake you know that, that, that meets his end and um um, I you know I I like the fact that um, the vine then decides okay these folks the, the vine is clearly very intelligent it decides at one point in time it's not going to let these people go because it these people might tell on it you know tell on its existence yeah. um, so it sort of just traps them in the house and grows all over the windows and and uh, you can really feel some kind of fear because this is a family that's trapped there it's Bill his wife. And, um, of course, M is trapped in there, but um, also the little girl. So you, there is a sense of danger, of worry. And, um, you know, that, that's where the fear and the horror comes in. But actually, ultimately, it's very silly because of the this segment relies on practical effects. And the practical effects is just horrible. You've got this plastic 
kind of creeper. <laughs> <laughs> they just move <laughs> off 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 screen. They move it, you know. So um, it it looks very artificial in the way it's done. But you know, silly fun, just just madcap craziness. So that's what I liked yeah. about it. I mean, I'm not sure. Like trying to think of it from you know a production standpoint, how in the world would you really make a vine? you know, seem menacing back in 1965. You know, I mean, that would be a tough thing to pull off. You know, I mean, the, the scene where it, it doesn't show the dog get, you know, choked to death, but that's pretty, uh, pretty wild there. I mean, that's pretty disturbing because especially there's a little girl, you know, and like the dog's her best friend. And, mm. you know, that's, that's pretty scary. Then I think about it, even if you're a parent out there and you're thinking, you know, yeah, you're in, uh, you know, in your house and you're trapped, but so sure, you know, like what is that girl maybe six or seven years old yeah. like that's 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 that is really scary <laughs> yeah that part also got me because you know billy you and i were we're parents <clears throat> my daughter's the same age as this girl at the moment so yeah i was feeling the terror but the first time i watched it i can't remember when i was a kid when i watched this movie i can't remember the feeling i had towards this episode in particular i didn't like it i didn't dislike it i didn't find it memorable i mean we'll talk about the ones that i that were really the standouts for for me and for you later but yeah the first two were not you know and then um but i liked them you know that's that's my point even as a kid i remember i rewatched this movie a couple of times when i was young and i wouldn't have done that if i didn't like everything about it you know and i also didn't fast forward the vhs tape or the the betamax or whatever we had back then to get past these two so they were enjoyable for me on some level i just can't remember the emotions i had associated with them but um now that i've watched it as an adult i realize it's just you know like like we said weird bizarre entertainment that th this kind of stuff that we like <laughs> so you know the, the fun is in the craziness and the, the silliness that they expect us to swallow here <laughs> yeah for sure like i said it's very silly so even the parts where it is a little you know scary they're very much drowned out by the silliness of it so it makes it like not a very <laughs> scary part of a horror movie you know where there's supposed to be quote-unquote terror going on <laughs> yeah the, the most horrific scene we've discussed and that is the death of the dog but i would say the, the the second scene that's very memorable that i remember even from when i was a kid but this is no, nothing to do with horror is when they first when bill first tries to cut the vine with uh, these um this massive pair of shears and then <laughs> as he as he cuts down on the vine the shears just fly out of his hand Whoop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah like you said practically effects i don't know if they like had him snap and then cut the scene and started it again with him throwing them because i yes. know what it looks like that's, he throws that's them. exactly what it looks like <laughs> oh man it's brilliant so what does this plant have some form of man magnetic manipulation as well <laughs> some telekinesis on the part of the plant oh it's brilliant so yeah great i mean it is fun it's i'm not gonna you know besmirch this part too much you know it gave me what i wanted which was a laugh and also a little bit of uh, trepidation there on the part of of the family being threatened so well done <laughs> yeah for sure so oh like we said earlier too in between each of these segments you'll have you know peter cushing's character dr shrek and the other five gentlemen and they'll all be kind of acting like they're sort of believing what he's saying, but maybe not 100%, but definitely getting uncomfortable because he seems to know things about where they've been, where they're headed, about their personal life. 
you know, so it starts to get a little bit creepy at this point. But then you still have uh, Franklin Marsh, <laughs> played by Christopher Lee, who's very much, you know, skeptical about all this, right? Yeah, definitely. Oh, man. He's, he's in between every single um, story that's being told by Dr. Strait. You've got Franklin Marsh criticizing and, and even insulting them directly for believing this hoo-ha <laughs> that he's thinking it is. <laughs> But um, and, and those parts are gold. I just love it. And and Christopher Lee sort of, um, you know, very antagonistic and very, um, you know, um, he's, he's not shy about his feelings, whereas <laughs> Peter Cushing's just playing the straight man. He's just handling it all in a calm, zen like fashion. <laughs> and that's so brilliant seeing these two wildly different characters, you know, uh, contending with each other. So I love those in-between segments, back to the framing device segments. Yeah, I mean, Christopher Lee's character, very arrogant. Uh, uh, and, you know, Peter Cushing's character is very, you know, laid back, very calm, very nice, yeah. you know, down to earth. But, uh, yeah, we'll see uh, we'll see more from those guys in a few minutes here. But, all right, so the next segment is called Voodoo. And this is one that, you know, we kind of mentioned before we got into it here really too far that it's uh, kind of ridiculous mostly because of the lead character played by Roy Castle. Uh, his name is Biff Bailey. <laughs> and he's a jazz musician who accepts a gig in the West Indies. You know, his uh, he, he's informed by the manager, him and his band, that, you know, they're going to be going out there for a gig at a club. But once they arrive, Biff is intrigued to find out that a local superstition is very strong here and that they perform rituals at night after everything closes down near the hotel where he's staying. So Biff sneaks out that night and not only observes the ritual, but writes down the music because he thinks it's uh, you know, a pretty snappy tune that he might be able to use. Uh, he has no problem uh, stealing other people's music, apparently. <laughs> um, and he does intend to use it for his own personal gain. Uh, now, the voodoo worshippers and the head man warn him that it will lead to his demise if he tries to use this music but in typical uh idiotic fashion he <laughs> goes back to the uh, his uh, home and inputs it into his act with his band even after he was warned several times again to not do it and as they're performing this music a strong wind comes in and basically tears the club apart where they're playing and he walks home and he knows something is up and you can tell he's very nervous and very scared and he gets home and just bizarre things start happening at his apartment and the next thing you know he comes face to face with uh, one of the voodoo uh, ritual people he saw back uh, in the West Indies that uh, looks like he's about to break his neck <laughs> yeah 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 so so the ending is left kind of ambiguous you know we don't know exactly what his fate was um, but um, yeah I agree uh, it's got a very ominous feel to it but also this silliness which the the second tale we discussed was known you know exhibited but I find this one to be that the fright factor to be a little bit you know higher than the the silliness I don't know why it's just the use of wind but, but because basically that's the only agent that torments him throughout until the very end um, is yeah. wind Right, Billy, the wind is what assaults the club when he plays this rendition of the music that he stole from, from Dambala, the god of voodoo. And also yep. the wind is what, what um, 
<clears throat> you know, torments him in that alleyway that I mentioned earlier. So Amicus uh -huh. used some pretty good effects, which was very cheap to come by, and they used it so effectively to evoke this sense of horror. And this guy's got this... He's a buffoon, like you said. He's an idiot. But that's, yeah. that's why I feel bad for him. Because yeah. he's being tortured and he, he still tries to maintain his his upbeat person, personality throughout this whole thing. But he just cracked at, cracks at the very end. So I like that. I really, really, really dug that. Yeah, I think I might actually change my Twitter name to Biff Bailey. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna do that, but <laughs> you don't need to, dude. You don't need to. But, yeah, you're Maybe not I'll this. Maybe out some Biff Bailey picks <laughs> later tonight. <laughs> Why not? Just post it on Twitter. We'll, I'll comment and retweet. We'll, we'll turn this into a horror slash horror comedy meme. <laughs> Why not? Oh man. We'll yeah. See who so bites. yeah, that was. Mm. We'll see who bites a, on it's Twitter. It's a good one. <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. It's 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 worth it's worth its weight for a little bit of humor, and Roy Castle's goofiness, but. Uh, like you said, some very, you know, some parts where there's just, you can see on his face, like you said, there's wind and there's not really anything gory or horrific or super scary, but there's this feeling of dread that he's going to, you know, he's going to pay for stealing that music mm. yeah, one way or the other. But it's interesting to me, if you look at some of these, some of them, the way they ended, you know, werewolf ended, you knew, you don't see it, but you know, he's dead. He's going to yeah. get killed by that werewolf. In the vines, you're not quite sure. It's a little ambiguous. With voodoo, a little ambiguous as well. Yeah. But now I mean, in the next segment, it's it's you know what happens to everybody. Definitely because well, this this is my favorite segment. But you know, I wanted you to do this because this features Christopher Lee. But um, yeah, the next one, disembodied hand. Very yeah. very interesting little segment. This is when Doctor Shrek finally convinces. Or sort of browbeats Franklin Marsh, played by Christopher Lee, the art critic, to attempt a tarot reading. So um, yeah, this this segment, I think you're gonna have a lot of fun with this, uh, Billy, because we both love Christopher Lee. But yeah, oh, I yeah. wanted you to do this because you do it well. But uh, just uh, before we continue, you know, there was another a little bit, like you say, the ambiguous ending being a big deal, you know, in mm -hmm. um, in the. Um, films this one obviously does not have that ambiguous ending disembodied hand the previous one though with biff bailey uh some people interpreted that you know as the the actual god dambala showing up at the end to reclaim what was stolen from him and then mm. strangling or murdering biff bailey even though we don't see his demise happening so you know um that's another thing i liked about the amicus endings you you don't know it, it was up to your own imagination to supply the fear sometimes because it could just have been one of the voodoo practitioners that followed him across the ocean to, to, to England. But it could also be, you know, the actual God who shows up. We, you don't know. It's, they, they never explain whether it is or not. So, you know, that's one, one of the things I liked about Amicus. They did that in future anthology movies as well where they, you know, it's, it's up to you to interpret how far you want the death scene to go even though you never actually see it happening <laughs> so being yeah a, i mean yeah i always thought they looked like for me the first time i saw this film i just thought everybody died you know i just thought okay the werewolf killed that guy the vines they don't get out they die you know voodoo i don't know if you want to say he had a heart attack or was scared to death or like you said if it was actually that you know a voodoo god dumbala somehow you know mm. 
used his voodoo to kill him, but that's how I always interpreted those so far. Like that, those those people are all dead. Yeah, well, when we get to the very end, Billy, we're gonna talk some more about that because that sort of ties into <laughs> how the the framing sequence itself ends, which was always a big deal in these Amicus movies. Like, how are they gonna wrap up the framing sequence and and leave you with that very final twist um, that 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 would make it worthwhile, <laughs> you know? But but everything so far has been worthwhile. But you know what I mean. So we'll get to that later too. Yeah, where we're going to talk about that. Absolutely. But, but this disembodied hand, I'm curious to, to hear what you have to say about this. Because this thing, whoa, this this is a masterpiece of uh-huh. horror for me. All right. So yeah, so disembodied hand. So an art critic named Franklin Marsh, our buddy Christopher Lee, loves to attend art shows, then trash talk the artist's work. He also writes scathing reviews for a newspaper about said artists. He has some particularly awful things to say about an artist, Eric Landor, which is another familiar face, Michael Guff, yeah, from Michael. Hammer and all sorts of other uh, horror movies of the age, right? Yeah, Michael Goff, always oh, a classic. He's got such a distinctive-looking face. <laughs> I love the guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you figure he was in the skull. Mm. He was in uh, Dracula, horror of Dracula, whatever you want to call it, like from 1958. Yeah, horror uh, of Dracula, he was, yeah. yeah, he's he's been in uh, quite a few movies. Um, so he does it on more than one occasion to Landor, but at this time, Landor has a surprise for him and embarrasses Marsh in front of a crowd of people. Marsh doesn't take it well though and runs Landor over with his car severing his hand in the process (laughs) extreme a bit extreme there uh franklin (laughs) yeah i think we have some anger management issues there and you know obviously for an artist to lose a hand you know a painter that's 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 pretty bad that pretty much means the end of your uh, art career so uh after he recovers lander can't take it and he actually commits suicide, which I was really shocked that they showed that in this movie. Yeah, me too. No, 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 definitely. I mean, um, he shot himself, but um, it was shown to be quite gruesome, you know, putting the gun in his mouth and, and that's it. Or was it to his temple? Now I'm, I'm forgetting. But um, yeah, yeah, the, the suicide was very uh, pronounced in this tale. Yeah, it was wild. But so as the movie uh, moves on and Marsh thinks he's uh, in the clear... However, as the movie moves on, he gets a visit from uh, not Eric Landor himself, but his disembodied hand that was torn off in the accident. Yes. So, what did you think? What did you think about this, Herman? I really, really, really enjoy this segment. Yeah, this is. I mean, you said the the voodoo segment was your favorite, didn't you? Uh, mm-hmm. Billy? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, this yeah. one is my favorite, not only because it features Christopher Lee, but because it has a bit of a EC Comics flavor to it. You know, Vault of Horror, oh, sure. Haunt of Fear, <laughs> Tales from the Crypt. It's yeah. got this little, this this rubber, this embodied hand <laughs> creeping around, <laughs> seeking revenge on the part of its owner, who was an artist who was robbed of his livelihood by this art critic. <laughs> so, of course, this guy's scum. Now, think about it. The previous guys were not actually scum. They were normal people. The one, the, the first guy was an architect, you know, the from right. Werewolf. He was a, seemingly a good guy. And this, uh, except for his family, <laughs> you know, being having having this, this this pall having hanging over them. Second guy too, yeah. you know, um, uh, he's a you know a family man, he's got a family to care for, but he's menaced by these vines. And then 
You know, um, Biff Bailey, I mean, he's, he steals Dumballa's music, but he's not a murderer. He's not anybody that you wish, you know, bad things happen to. But this guy, Christopher Lee's character, Franklin Marsh, man, what a scumbag. What, uh-huh. what a horrific example of a human being. And, and that is something that works in horror, especially short-form horror, where you set up this character to be so hateful and reprehensible that the readers and the, the, the viewers actually want something terrible to happen to him. Now, this is where oh, yeah. this is why this story is so great, because this guy, Franklin Marsh, he's not only tormented by losing um, his status as a as an art critic, you know, because he actually uh, he's, he's brilliantly tricked, you know, by Michael Goff's character <laughs> by, you know, him bringing out. But, well, obviously, I mean, we've talked about this, but what happens is he's critiquing this guy's art and then you know, another artist's work is shown to him by the artist that he's slandering and critiquing. And um, he loves this piece of art. And then it turns out to be, it had been painted by a chimp, by a chimpanzee, right? So, (laughs) you know, that's a brilliant way of, 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 of slapping this guy in the face because now in public view, there was a huge crowd who saw this happening. Uh, in, in, In the eyes of the public, he's lost face. And he's lost his reputation. Uh-huh. So that's the first bit of uh, horror that happens yeah. to him. And you feel it. You, you, you're loving this because he's such a, a terrible man. <laughs> you want something bad to happen to him. But yep. then obviously he, he um, runs over the artist. And then the artist commits suicide. But then he's tormented slowly by this creeping hand who shows up at the oddest places. It shows up in his car at one point in time, <laughs> but but that happens at the end. But, you know, at first it creeps into his study. <laughs> it, it, it jumps on his shoulder. <laughs> he stabs it with a pen knife. He throws it into the fireplace. <laughs> There's lots of stuff he does to this hand that's, mm-hmm. that's seeking revenge. And this hand is relentless. It just won't give up. It, it's like mm-hmm. the Terminator. <laughs> from. It's like the Arnold Schwarzenegger yeah. Terminator. You know, it just doesn't give up. So eventually, I don't know if, if you want to spoil this for us, Billy, but I think as part of your synopsis, something suitably, um, you know, uh, effective and, um, you know, it made gratifying happens. Uh, what, what does happen at the end with this hand in the car? Well, yeah, so the hand eventually, uh, after surviving stabbings and burnings and being thrown <laughs> in a, a lake, <laughs> yeah, it because... just keeps coming after him and coming after him. Um, so what happens is it starts to attack him while he's driving his car and Christopher Lee's character gets so uh, upset by this and so takes his eyes off the road and gets in this horrific car accident and loses his eyesight from the car accident, which obviously if you're an art critic, how yeah. are you going <laughs> to critique art if you can't see? So something suitably I obviously yeah. like some of the other people we theorize, but yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, he gets his. He gets his comeuppance. Horrific irony, but also, you know, I love the way Freddie Francis directed this because the way it happens is just brilliant. Basically, what happens is, um, yeah, the, the the hand is in the back of his car and creeps up on his shoulder, and then I, I don't know if you can remember Chris Lee's face. <laughs> it's like the <laughs> ultimate form of terror, and he's perfected that. Mm-hmm. He must have done that you know, millions of times in his career. So he didn't need to practice yeah. it for this movie, but it seems like something oh, yeah. that he's got down pat, right? This this mm-hmm. this extreme form of terror on his face and then, ah, and he overturns the car. And then you don't know what's happened to him. You At this point in time, you think he could have died. 
he could be dead, right? right? But then he's yeah. not dead because they actually, the, the uh, paramedics lift him into the back of the ambulance. And then he's unconscious, or you think at this point in time, at least he's unconscious. And then the, the one paramedic says, or the one bystander says, what happened? And he says, yeah, a guy was in a horrific car accident and uh, he'll never see again. And, you know, and then <laughs> you hear the scream from the back of the ambulance. <laughs> being Christopher <laughs> Lee hearing the verdict <laughs> passed on his eyesight oh I loved it uh, it's just now, brilliant I, w- I will say this though so in and now look I'm not condoning running people over that <laughs> make a, 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 a fool of you but I will say not only did Michael Goff's character uh, pull the chimpanzee trick on him and make an idiot out of him in front of all those people Christopher Lee in the next scene was invited to speak at uh, some kind of a, not a, it almost seems like an awards ceremony or something like that, doesn't it? Or some kind of art house, you know, gathering. And he gets up to begin speaking, you know, with his uh, really, uh, what would you call it? Uh, His big attitude. Like he's got a very uh, high opinion of himself and and his uh, his critiquing of the art. Mm. And Michael Guff's character is in the audience and actually cuts out, does a cutout <laughs> of little <laughs> chimpanzees. <Apes>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and starts waving them. And <laughs> to remind him. <laughs> yeah, to remind him of being made a fool of. And Christopher Lee's character, you know, he can't take it. He almost like looks like he wants to just vomit right there. Yes. And he just sits down. And then after that is when he gets in the car. Because I think he, he knows what's coming. You know, he tormented this artist many, many times. So he knows here's the payback. This artist is going to show up wherever he's at and torture him about the whole chimp incident, <laughs> you know, to make his life, you know, a living hell. <laughs> so he's, Christopher Lee just snaps because he can't take the thought of being tormented by this guy. So that's what he runs him over. <laughs> yeah, no. Okay, so he was driven to murder. <laughs> But yeah, he's still the most reprehensible character on this whole train. Oh, yeah. In this whole train, for sure. So yeah, I I love that the best story hands down for me, plot wise. But also, it's got yeah. so many separate scenes of horror, you know, which you, mm-hmm. you kind of feel. And I mean, not only the the fact that the guy was run over, and then the hospital scene where it's it's revealed that he's lost his hand, and he wakes up and he sees the stump. Remember, and then he screams. Yeah. And then his suicide. And then, you know, the hand that just won't die, <laughs> you know, that keeps coming back. Yeah. And, you know, this is like a nonstop train ride of horror right after the the first gallery scene. And, uh, well, mm-hmm. pardon the pun, a train ride of horror. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I love it. So, yeah, brilliant story. My favorite of the bunch. Well done, Chris Lee. And also well done with Michael Goff, you know, as Eric Lander, the mm-hmm. painter. He, he played it so well. So they yeah, gave that, those were really the only two players in that one you know it was pretty much just those two guys a couple of bit parts here a line here or there but it was pretty much that whole you know part was just those two guys going back and forth and then yeah (laughs) the hand (laughs) and you know yeah and it also sports a christopher lee line that i've used many times in my life just um you know for the heck of it this is highly irregular this is highly irregular (laughs) (laughs) that sounds like a mr spock line there from star trek (laughs) <laughs> oh, Chris Lee would have made a great Spock. But anyway, no, 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 no. Spock is Spock. Don't go there. But still, think about it. He would have made a great Vulcan. <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. So, okay. So, hey, on to our last section here. 
Uh, our last segment is called Vampire. So uh, this one is a, another interesting little tale, and you know there is there is a death in here, but not maybe who you would think it is. So uh, so what happens in this one? Well, um, before I get into this, uh, Billy, I want to mention something. Every time Doctor Shrek foretells the future with his tarot cards, the last card is never revealed. I mean, oh, true. Because of him, obviously his own predilection, he doesn't want to reveal it. But mm-hmm. um, at one point in time, d- definitely before the vampire tale, before the final tale, the the you know occupants of the car, they they just had enough. They want to see what the last card is and why Doctor Shrek doesn't want to reveal it every time. So they they finally force him to show them the final card, and it turns out to be death. And every they, time. Every time. So they asked him about the previous stories. He confirms, yes, in fact, they all had the death card at the end. So <clears throat> now uh, the whole scene in the frame sequence shifts to Don- Donald Sutherland, who's sitting in the corner of this train, cool as hell, cool as Cool Hand Luke. Like He's the coolest cucumber in the supermarket. I mean, this guy, he radiates coolness. He's got this little smoke in his lip, uh-huh. Donald Sutherland lips that look so pretty cool when he smokes. <laughs> uh-huh. yep. And he says with uh, this guy, like I said already, I, I've beaten this, this horse to death. He's the epitome of cool. <laughs> As he says, sure, I'll have a go, you know, uh, with the American accent. And then he taps three times on the deck and his fortune is red, knowing that it would probably be death again. But he's he might beat the odds. So it turns out um, the last future here um, is that of Bob Carroll. That's Donald Sutherland's character. And Mm -hmm. Bob and his French wife, Nicole, who we mentioned earlier is played by Jennifer Jane. Yes. Mm -hmm. They've moved to a small New England town uh, where Bob is to become a local doctor. So he's in the medical profession. He's a doctor. But their arrival seems to coincide with some kind of strange outbreak of what they call in the in the film pernicious anemia, so mm-hmm. pernicious blood loss, or uh, you know someone has been in other words just losing blood, drained of blood. Um, it happened in children. It happened in, in adults, patients that he's seen, and strange cases start to pop up in his surgery. There's fang marks that later surface, and his colleague, Dr. Blake, who's played by Max Adrian, he's the older uh-huh. doctor in the practice, he comments that if, this this is a line from the movie as well, this is a quote, if this were medieval times, then uh, they'd almost say that there was a vampire on the loose, that the people were victims of a vampire. So, uh-huh. but you know, as it turns out, Bob, uh, the main character, he's not laughing. Because Blake, in fact, then later points the finger of suspicion at his wife, Nicole. Now, think about it. Suspicions Uh fall on foreigners back then. (laughs) You know, there's a foreigner from Europe. Vampires are from (laughs) Europe. But, you know, then it's left to us as the audience to, to sort of discover, is she really the perpetrator of this? Is she really the vampire? And uh, a very nice twist at the end. I, I like this twist a lot because this is one of the twists I did not see coming. You know, it turns out that his wife, Nicole, is, in fact, you know, a vampire. But, you know, she's not the only vampire running around. In fact, 
in the words of, of Connor McLeod from Highlander or Sean Connery or the Kurgan <laughs> played by Crancy <laughs> Brown, there can be only one. <laughs> That's what this story's about. A vampire doesn't want another vampire encroaching on its territory. <laughs> so Dr. Blake has set up, you know, um, uh, Bob to kill his own wife. You know, he's sown the suspicion that Nicole is a vampire and she in fact is a vampire and then well she's not really a vampire right Billy she she has I mean she is but you know she's she she would not snack on her husband so she's not one of the EC vampires that you know go all bloodthirsty and stuff uh, right. he, he, he could have had a life with her they could have lived happily ever after they were in love that's why she married him right um, yeah. even though she was a vampire but he does in, in fact stake her you know, he mm-hmm. does kill her on the the word of Dr. Blake that this is to be done. And it turns out that, you know, uh, Dr. Blake orchestrated this whole thing to just get rid of a rival. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 So what did you think of this ending? I thought it was great. I loved it. This is my second, yeah. second yeah. favorite tale. Oh, it's wild. I do like it because you don't get the impression until the very end that Dr. Blake is anything but you know, uh, Dr. Bob, you know, Donald Sutherland's character, his friend and his confidant and really, you know, looking out for his best interests. And then when the end comes and he gets like, you know, the carpet pulled out from underneath, (laughs) it's a, it's a really good shock. And the only thing about this one is I can't figure out, you know, when you have, you know, a film, you know, an anthology like this, you know, you have like, you know, 15, 20 minutes to tell a story. So it's very difficult to, relay uh how long between events are you know Mm. so i just kind of felt like dr bob seemed like you know oh i just got married and i love my wife and she's this beautiful woman and it didn't take a whole lot of convincing like if you look at like a how maybe the time frame was that he's like uh yeah my wife's a vampire i think i'm gonna stake her (laughs) (laughs) i was just like yeah it seemed like over a period of like two weeks it's like oh bob (laughs) i don't know (laughs) Somebody'd have to. It would take more than two weeks of convincing for me to stake a loved one. But <laughs> yeah, you're right. I, I think it might also be the fact that it was a fairly quick wedding. It's maybe tough. it's not yeah. quite a shotgun wedding, but yeah, but it would be very tough. I mean, because um, he should at least be incredulous, you know, because he's a medical man. Now I'm thinking, yeah. a doctor, scientist, you know, doesn't believe in superstition mm-hmm. readily. But um, this Dr. Blake seems to have some kind of influence over his young friend, over Dr. Bob, and he sort of exerts that by also providing some of his medical expertise. <laughs> you know, he does, <laughs> you know, uh, substantiate his claims with evidence, you know, like, so yeah. Yeah, I think he sort of also has this, like I say, this form of control, this hero worship, which he, which, which is on the side of Dr. Bob, and Dr. Blake uses that to sort of convince him. But, you know, um, um, yeah, that there is that jarring sense of time lost. Like, how many cases, strange cases of anemia did they have to go through before Bob eventually started to believe that the, his wife was the vampire? I mean, if it was a year of that and if there was some problems in their relationship, I would have understand. But there wasn't. They were in love <laughs> the, the entire story through. So, yeah, that part that he would stake her, that did make it a little bit unbelievable for me. Um, yeah yeah but uh, you know uh, 
Still good, though. Very good. Very good. Very good. And mm-hmm. Donald Sutherland's performance, being the first of his career on the big screen, I think, made it... Well, well, he was great from the get-go, I think. Already, you could see his mm-hmm. prodigious talent you know, showing through. So great, great story. And, you know, um, I love the fact that they sort of also um, paid homage to Dracula, you know, with Bob as the sort of Jonathan Harker kind of character and um, Dr. Blake as the Van Helsing character. But then they completely turned that on its head at the end with saying, hey, Dr. Van Helsing's actually the vampire. (laughs) So... Yeah, uh, yeah, for real. Love that, love that. Yeah, so excellent, excellent showing. We ended it on a very strong little vampire mystery tale yeah absolutely so okay so look we're gonna spoil the very ending you know that was the last segment and then it's just the last framing sequence here and we're gonna spoil it so if you haven't seen this and you don't want it spoiled you can you know jump ahead for a couple of minutes here or stop go watch the movie and then come back (laughs) but yeah spoiler warning yeah so after uh you know uh, donald sutherland's character you know we fade back to the train scene and away from uh, him being dragged off to jail uh, in the future. We again see that, you know, the final card that comes up is the death card. And then uh, uh, something happens here to uh, inform the audience of what is uh, what has really happened. So uh, why don't you tell us about that, Herman? Right. Okay. This, this is just amazing. This is a really great scene. And, um, I I can't remember if I saw it coming, Billy. I really honestly can't remember. But obviously, I saw this the first Not time me. as a kid. Yeah, I, Not me. I think I, I didn't. <laughs> I mean, okay, they 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 put they gave you some hints throughout the framing sequences of just exactly who Doctor Shrek is. Um, but this is one of those supremely ambiguous endings because you know what's happening at the end for sure, but. You don't know then what that what that meant for the stories that have already been told. Were they fiction? Were they actually real events that happened? So let me explain this to the listeners who must be really confused by now by my, you know, <laughs> meandering back and forth here. Basically, what happens is, Doctor Shrek, after the final tale, they turn over Donald Sutherland's card, and again, it's revealed to be death. And then you know things get a little bit heated in the carriage, and then there's a blackout. And um, almost like the train, you know, had an accident, which which will also we'll talk about that later as well. But but let me get to that. Basically, there's a blackout, and when the the lights come back on, Doctor Shrek has vanished, uh, leaving only some the cards behind, and they see like death cards everywhere. And then the train stops, and they think, okay, this was all just a dream. This this guy was some kind of a magician. He played a trick on us, you know. Um, and they all say goodbye to each other and you know they're at their destination now it's time to part ways and when they get out of the train the train station the platform is deserted nobody's there mist you know hanging over everything and mm-hmm. they look around they don't know where they are and they say this isn't our destination and then they look and they see in the distance at, at some kind of a gate to the platform they see the back of Dr. Shrek and they're like, who is that? Who's that over there? And then Dr. Shrek turns, and this time around, he reveals his true face. And Christopher Lee, I think, is the guy who points, he says, it's, it's Dr. Shrek. And then we, the camera zooms in on his face, and it's the face of death. Mm-hmm. The skull face of the Reaper himself, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dr. Shrek was death, the personification of death. Um, so, Billy, I, I love that. I, it just it threw me for a loop because then there's so many other implications. There's so many things that have to come into play. You have to kind of rework everything that's been happening in the stories up to this point. What did you think of this reveal, this denouement? Oh, I loved it because, like you said, you think to yourself, okay, so when he was on the train with them, Dr. Shrek, and was telling them what was going to happen in the future, so, okay, he and he did say to them, you know, before that blackout scene that the only way those men could avoid those, you know, scenes that he showed them in their future with the tarot cards was to, if they died before that stuff would happen. So you're thinking to yourself, okay, so then they get off the train and a newspaper actually floated was like kind of blowing around in the air and who was it was it the the biff bailey character yeah. one of the characters grabbed the newspaper and looked at it and it said you know there was a horrible train accident and five men died and that's when you know you realize that they're dead but at what but at what point did they die did they die while you know did, you know, while Shrek took his nap, and then it's just like, well, at what point in the film did they die? Like, yes. did, were they dead before he was telling those stories, or after, or like when? At what point were they dead? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Actually, I mean, there's so many interpretations here, Billy. Like, um, yeah. Okay, one interpretation could be is that death was just messing with them because they clearly died on the train accident, right? So death showed up before yeah. the accident. Now think about the blackout might might have been when the train accident occurred. The blackout yep. when he mm-hmm. just disappeared. But before that, they were all still alive. They were all having their futures read by death, who was just having the time of his life impersonating <laughs> this Dr. Shrek, whose German name actually means terror, right? That's where the name comes from, Dr. Mm-hmm. Terror's House of Horrors. And, um, you know, uh, then that could be the first interpretation, just death having a bit of fun. Second interpretation could be th- this, if they somehow managed to escape their death on the train, this would have been their future, kind of a final destination sort of scenario where there's no way to escape death. So even if they survive the train or accident or if the train accident never occurs, this is what is in store for them, a, a future or a death or a suffering so much worse than what they're getting now, which is a quick death on a train. Um, that's my preferred way of interpreting it. But, mm-hmm. but the third way, Billy, that it could be interpreted is that they all perished from their respective stories that they were in. And now mm-hmm. they were on the, a kind of Charon's ferry, you know, the boat that ferries you from the land of the living to the dead in Greek mythology, oh, Charon, yeah. Charon's ferry. Oh, yeah. The train is a kind of ferry system from the land of the living to the land of the dead. So they already died in their respective stories, even though in some stories they clearly did not die, like Christopher Lee becoming blind, but he might have committed suicide then too. You know, but so, you know, be that as it may, they died in their stories and then they were on this transport system to the land of the dead and death was their companion on the way to sort of like to to make them come to peace with how they died, you know, to to make them deal with sort of um, to to give them closure. And that's the yeah, closure. Another, yeah. Another interpretation. So I don't know which one you go for. I like to go for the second one, which is sort of like alternate futures. But um, wh- which one do you like? I mean, or, or do you have another interpretation of this ending, this brilliant ending? Well, like I said, the first time 
I saw it, I was, you know, probably too young to really understand everything that was going on. But with subsequent viewings, I definitely felt like, oh, okay. So like you said, when there was that blackout scene after the last uh, story was told, maybe that was when the accident happened. And, you know, like you said, death was just on the train messing with them, saying this is going to be your future, but full well knowing they were going to die in that accident in mere moments. That's kind of how I feel. Like, it, it probably, to me, that kind of makes the most sense. If you want to try to put it in a, you know, in a in a way that makes sense and put it in a nice little box, you know, and yeah. wrap it all up. Like, that's that to me is probably the probably the easiest way to look at it, you know, to have more of a, you know, a storytelling where you know everything's kind more, of more like linear linear yeah yeah i agree yeah. that's more logical more linear um that's the obvious interpretation but also it makes you sense you know and um uh, for some people they would like that interpretation more because you want to make sense of a movie you don't want to be left hanging you know with with mm. all these implications but um but I, I mean i like the other interpretations too because i like yeah. sometimes to be left hanging at the end of a horror movie well, right. So think about it. If the blackout scene was the train wreck, so then after they were dead, those were ghosts getting off the train and ghosts looking at a newspaper saying five guys died. Like, think about it. That doesn't really make a whole lot of sense either. <laughs> you know what I mean? There was, I don't nope. know. It's, it's, it's wild. It's really wild. Even just try to try it's, to even put it in any kind of a it's substantial a crazy crazy story but it's uh, you know it is done well i'm this does not detract from my enjoyment of it and and well no, done. not at all no definitely i mean well done to milton sabotsky because he was the writer you know on all mm -hmm. of this he wrote every conceived yeah. every single story and the framing sequence too so all the dialogue was his as well so you know um i, I loved it and you know there's even the music the score by elizabeth lutyens who later became mm -hmm. famous, you know, for doing horror scores. She, mm -hmm. the, the score itself lends itself so well to that ending because you have the, this, this, this ominous last bit of music. And, um, you know, I, yeah, I like that ending. I like the fact that you don't know what's going on. You just have to, to, to think about stuff a little bit more after the, the credits roll. Because I'm still thinking about this movie now after watching it 35 years ago, <laughs> you know, and, and rewatching <laughs> it obviously a couple of times. I still can't come up with a yeah. good, with my preferred or favorite ending, even though I, I, I sort of, um, you know, move slightly towards the second interpretation, which, which is the alternate futures one. I love to think about this kind of stuff and speculate and, and, and worry myself sleepless. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's always fun to try to do that. Anytime you get a, <clears throat> an ambiguous ending with a film, it's always interesting to hear all the theories because every time I think, oh yeah yeah that's probably how it is somebody else will say well, what about looking at it from this angle or what about this ending how about this and i think i never even thought of that and there's always somebody that'll come up with something i haven't thought of you know because we always all see things in a different way and it's always awesome i love that because it always gives you that uh you know there's it, that's what gives these movies like this a spark to me you know at the ending like we said the framing sequences were pretty you know pretty solid they were probably the best part of it and then each segment was pretty good too, some better than others, but an ending like that really pulls it all together and makes you think like, wait, wait a minute, what just really happened here? And it really makes you think. It's a thinking movie, a 1965 low-budget horror movie. That's a thinking movie. It's, it's, it's trying to get your, you know, the viewers to, uh, 
to really think. Yeah, just by thinking about what's happening, you're scaring yourself to death. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so there's the horror that's being presented to you, and then there's the horror of what is implied, and that horror keeps it continues on long after the movie has finished rolling the credits. <laughs> that's what makes yeah. this movie so effective, and that's why it's one of my favorites. And in fact, all of the Amicus anthology. Um, framing sequences of subsequent movies also have this effect so um, wow well done well done uh, Amicus for scaring me witless <laughs> or allowing me to scare myself <laughs> witless <laughs> right <laughs> oh brilliant brilliant but you know oh what a fun movie yeah, absolutely all right well let's take a quick break here and then uh, we'll come back with uh, a little bit of a wrap-up and then even maybe a little preview so stay tuned All right, thanks, uh, Herman. Uh, I want to big time give you a huge thank you for coming on here and talking with me about this movie. Um, I know last time we talked about you know my favorite Hammer film, uh, Dracula's Risen from the Grave, but now we got uh, your favorite Amicus film out of the way. So there's uh, plenty of more films that you and I are going to be talking about down the road here. But uh, I really appreciate you coming on and talking about this one. Yeah, much gratitude, Billy. This was so much fun. A uh, great way to spend a Saturday morning here recording with you and talking about the stuff that I love and that you also love. And hey, man, sharing this kind of stuff with folks who are like-minded and horror-minded, uh, that's what we're all about. So <clears throat> I hope the listeners enjoyed it. Um, I'm ready for more. So anytime you want to have me back, I'll always be available. Oh, yeah, we'll definitely be going down the Hammer and Amicus Road again. Um in the near future but something else you and i uh, have a lot of fun with and uh, if for any of our listeners here that are on twitter definitely look us up i have both of our uh, twitter names in the show notes here uh, herman's at dark Longbox, and i'm at billy d underscore licious uh, we love to live tweet films as well so what we do is we take you know one of our favorite crazy wild you know kooky films that are in the horror sci-fi genre and we live tweet it we know we'll start it at you know a certain time maybe an eight o'clock p.m start and uh, we'll live tweet while we watch the movie and we have a blast with it so if anybody's looking for something to do definitely look us up there because we usually a few days ahead of time we'll tweet it out hey on saturday night or friday night or whatever we're going to do this movie starting at eight o'clock and, you know, you're welcome to watch along and join in. And we usually pick something that's, you know, fairly readily available to stream or that a lot of people actually, in fact, own. So, you know, we just wanted to let everybody know to look for that because we don't do them as often as we want to, but we're going to start doing uh, some more often for sure. And, you know, some of the movies you can uh, look forward to is possibly uh, The uh, Silver Bullet by... Uh, one of your favorite writers mm, Stephen King oh nice Silver Bullet starring Gary Busey and a very young Corey Haim and uh, Reverend Lester Lowe <laughs> uh -huh. I know you love those creepy reverends uh <laughs> <laughs> hands off reverend so, uh, uh -huh. yeah so or a, a late 1970s classic Suspiria oh oh phantasmagoric fun but so disturbing Dario Argento 
crazy. Oh yeah, yeah, oh. we gotta do that. Oh. Oh, oh yeah, the visuals and the soundtrack. Oh, that movie is crazy good. Yeah, it's a ride for sure. And then, uh, how about a possessed car, Christine? <laughs> mm, another Stephen King, but this time directed by Mr. Carpenter himself, John. And they did a brilliant job of directing. Even though it's not one of his favorite movies, he directed. He did such a good, you know, job on it. So can't wait for that. Yeah, Christine, a big time childhood favorite of mine. Book and horror movie. Yeah, absolutely fantastic movie there with the master of horror, as you said. Um, and then <laughs> one of uh, our crazy favorites uh, from the mid-1970s, starring Captain Kirk himself, William Shatner, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Kingdom of the Spiders. <laughs> oh, damn, I've got oh. so many Kirk memes I want to post when we do this one. I'm going to have to get them ready. <laughs> Oh yeah, that oh, one will be a lot good. of fun because you know it's a it's a creepy, crazy movie, but there's a lot of stuff to poke fun at in that one too. Uh, yeah. But oh yeah, that's that's a it's a good movie and not a happy ending too. So that's even why I like it better. It isn't you know nobody's riding off in the sunset in that movie. And no, I definitely like it. not, definitely not, <laughs> definitely not. That's why it's gonna go down as a type of um, uh, like one of our favorite Hammer, Hammer movies. You know, um, basically it never ends happily. <laughs> nope. Nope. Um, so, yeah, not never, but never say never. But, yeah, we definitely like the ones with the darker kind of ending. So, yeah, that one's probably the best example so far. And, you know, Billy, I think it bears mentioning we've already tweeted some classics out there. You know, we've done The Skull. We've done our favorite, The Fog. You know, we've mm. done, uh, you know, uh, we've done a couple of Hammer films. We've done <clears throat> Dracula. Um, we the, the Dracula we did is uh, Taste the Blood of Dracula, I think it was. And Oh, yeah. And then we've done, re most recently, we did Terror Train with Jamie Lee Curtis. It was such a blast. Oh, yeah. And then we did some black exploitation too, oh. with Blackula. Can't forget about those. <laughs> Blackula 1 and 2. <laughs> yeah. So, so much fun. So much fun Love right those. there. Let's just, yeah, like I said, join in. If you're on Twitter, look us up. Join in. We have a blast. You know, there's a couple of people that, you know, usually, uh, try to join in or even after you know they'll come through and uh, leave some comments and how they feel about the film too and we welcome that as well so anybody wants to join in please join us it'll be a blast uh we will we'll make it worth your time for sure won't we <laughs> definitely definitely okay so you actually have recently i don't want to say resuscitated but you've got long box of darkness your horror podcast up and rolling again with uh a new co-host why don't you uh tell us about that yeah, well, uh, <clears throat> I've you know ever since I started talking to you and Grant, and we've we've been podcast partners on Into the Weird, which is the show we do discussing Doctor Strange and the Marvel Bronze Age of bizarreness. You know that's kind of in the horror vein too, right, Billy? I've been spoiled because I don't want to just do a one-man show anymore. I just, I don't want to hear the sound of my own voice echoing, you know, in a in this lonely fashion. And so I right. decided to put the Long Box of Darkness on hiatus for a while until I could find a co-host. And you've been on the Long Box of Darkness before, but you know, you've got your own podcast here and we've, we're doing Into the Weird together. So I decided to, you know, uh, call up one of my very old Twitter friends who's a horror fan. And it turned out to be Misty Graves. Um, Misty's a, a horror-loving, you know, child of the 90s, though. You know, so she's a little bit younger than we are, but she 
loves comic books. She's crazy about horror comic books. In fact, she does not like any modern yep. comic books, just like you and I do. I mean, we, we shouldn't say no horror, modern horror comics. We, we do like modern horror, but she is totally into the old EC comics, the, the, the DC comics from the 1970s, the Marvel Bronze Age horror magazines, and that's the kind of stuff she collects, you know, these vintage comics, and she's a big horror fan. So, you know, I, I decided, you know, I would ask her if she's interested and uh, just to change the dynamic a little bit. And she immediately said yes. And now Misty Graves is the co-host of The Long Box of Darkness. And in fact, she's doing more. She's producing the show. She's, you know, taking a little bit of um, all of the effort of production and editing off my hands because, you know, I'm very busy with Into the Weird. And so she's yeah helping me run the long box. And so far we've gotten two episodes out there. The first one was uh, about Elvira, you know, the classic horror hostess who oh yeah briefly transitioned DC yeah from the DC era, her brief transition to comics in the mid '80s, and now she's also obviously got some comics um, on the regular with um, you know Dynamite Entertainment and so forth. But you know those classic DC stories was when she took over the House of Mystery. So Misty and I did an episode on that. And then, you know, most recently, our um, apocalyptic plague episode dropped where we discussed Edgar <laughs> Allan Poe's The Mask of the Red Death. <laughs> Just to help people alleviate <laughs> their fears that, you know, there are worse things out there than our current pandemic, at least in the minds of writers and artists. And yeah, that, that uh, show was released uh, recently. So yeah, we've got two new episodes in the can. Um, and yeah, that's what what's happening with the long box of darkness. Cool. Also, and then you and I, of course, have our joint venture, like you uh, mentioned there, into the weird. Where every other episode, we spotlight something wacky, crazy from the Bronze Age. You know, whether it's Morbius or Man Thing or one of those just off the wall characters. And then the other episodes, we focus on Doctor Strange, and we've been making our way through his Marvel premiere run. Um, and we're getting towards the tail end of that. But then uh, we're, of course, going to transition right into his uh, own series that spun right out of that, are we not? Yeah, that's going to happen very soon. And uh, we've got a recording in the can and another one coming up. So look forward to that, listeners. If you're of the mind to check out uh, comics with a hefty horror flavor, those early Doctor Strange ones from the 70s are hard to beat. And, of course, like you mentioned, we talk about lots of other horror-related stuff from the Bronze Age. So, yeah, definitely um, give us a listen. You won't be disappointed. Yeah, for sure. We have a lot of fun with that show, and so do the uh, the listeners, and we get some good feedback and some good interactions with it on uh, the Twitters, for sure. So that's usually where you can find the two of us uh, trolling around and, uh, you know, making fun of each other and throwing out <laughs> eyeball pictures. And... <laughs> I still have to... I still have to <laughs> suss out your Achilles heel, man, because you've you've got my Achilles heel down, and now this eyeball horror thing's become a thing. Like I'm I'm literally like running around like Jamie Lee Curtis in Haddonfield, feeling hunted <laughs> on Twitter by these eyeball pics that pop up every now and then. <laughs> yeah, that latest one I think I threw out there oh. where it has an eyeball with a bunch of spiders crawling around it. Damn. Oh, that was disturbing. <laughs> just don't talk about it, man. Just don't talk about it. <laughs> <Just>. <laughs> so yeah, you've been you've been uh, bullying me, uh, trolling my feeds with these eyeball pictures, but the, just you wait, Billy. I'm going to find out what is your, you know, weakness and then I'm going to explode it. Your kryptonite is coming, buddy. Just just wait for it. Just wait for it. <laughs> my lips are sealed. <laughs> 
Okay, well, I guess that's going to uh, get us to the end here, and then uh, I'll jump off and uh, then wrap things up with a quick goodbye at the end here. So once again, thank you, Terman, for uh, joining me. I appreciate it, buddy. Thanks, Billy. Take care, everybody. Best of luck. All right, that's it for this episode. I'd like to once again thank Herman for joining me. He and I love to talk movies, as I'm sure you can tell. Uh, just a quick update, though, is this recording was from a few months back. The films we talked about as a bit of a preview are going to take uh, a backseat for a bit because in September and October, I'm going to be talking about two films starring Vincent Price. And not only that, but one of those conversations will be with two guests. So look for those in the next couple of months. Thanks for listening, and any feedback can be sent to either Twitter or through email at magazinesandmonsters at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and take care, everybody. Side of you.